0: This is the voice of the Pirates, Gary Cohen, and you are having the pleasure of listening to Tom and Mike on Left Coast Pirates.
1: Seconds to go. Down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by
2: Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around it in, and a foul.
1: Whitehead ties the game. Pound from Tritton. Woo! What Triton makes the world takes. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in Sandy. California. He is Mike Desiree class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski class of 1997. And we are left coast pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of left coast pirates. It's January 24th, 2021. And we've got lots to cover today. But first, Mike, you know what I'm going to do instead of throwing it to you to listen to you drone on about something I'm going to drone on a little bit. I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about the podcast's origins here, Mike. You know, this actually started off as a bit of a lark. You know, you moved into San Diego a bunch of years ago. And during the season after the games, we would sit there and commiserate about them. We would complain. We would make jokes. We would bring up points. And, and you know, I got a kick out of the things we would talk about. I mean, I, I would spend so much time on that phone laughing with you. And the content, in my opinion, was so good. I thought we were wasting it on a pair of humps like each other. But I said, let's start that podcast, Mike. Let's start a podcast. You thought I was crazy. Nobody was doing a podcast. There were no Seton Hall Pirate podcasts at the time. So there was even a vacuum that we could step into and actually do something. And even when I finally convinced you and we recorded that first episode, we had no idea what we were doing, but because of the personalities involved, we knew we wanted to do two things. We wanted to make one, the most entertaining podcast that we could do. And whether we've accomplished that or not, that's a subjective topic that people can talk about themselves. But number two, we wanted to treat Seton Hall like a big time program that was on the rise, that's in a big time conference. So what did that mean? We weren't going to make any excuses for them. We were going to compare this program to other programs of similar nature. And we were going to follow everything up with explanations, reasons, and data. And we were never going to just come out and say something like, oh, this guy's awful, or oh, this guy's great. No, that's not what we were going to do. We were going to give people reasons why we felt certain things. So you know what, Mike? This caused us to get kind of a glass ceiling of sorts for the podcast and it's of our own making don't pull punches we don't build statues and if people don't agree with us that's okay because that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to listen to things that make you think about things that are out of your mindset here and you know what by the time we're done people should be able to say huh you know i may not agree with them but hmm, i didn't think of it that way
2: that's funny. The content
1: was so good on our phone conversations. You couldn't let it go to waste. Oh, we're, we're, we're not deserving of content like that, Mike. Uh, look, the, the reality
2: is our format is what it is. You just need to avoid going on social media after a tough loss. No way, man. Like some people are going to want to fire the coach and others will have his back. Some people are going to want to tear down players and others will highlight all the positive stats. I mean, some people like me are going to say, oh, the sky is falling. And others will explain how this is another moral victory. But the truth usually kind of falls somewhere in the middle, Tom. You know, and, and if you want to have some true retrospective about the podcast, our first couple episodes were not very good at all, to say the least. Oh, and, it, no. and and in the spirit of social media, some people felt obligated <laughs> to tell us, <a> though, <laughs> you know? But you're right. L- like it or not. It was new content for our community of seton hall fanatics us included and over the past three years it has grown from our one seton hall podcast to seven more that cover seton hall or focus on the big east in general and i think that's great it offers the fans so much more than what the men's basketball program was doing previously i mean let's take a quick look at prior to this villanova game we go behind enemy lines with joe giuliano from the Philadelphia Inquirer and get all the inside scoop about their injuries and COVID pause. And he nailed the change to their starting lineup. I just wish he would have nailed the fact that Jermaine Samuels wasn't going to play because he drops 20 and was a huge difference in the ball game. But but then you also kind of listen to the front office on Instagram and they do this fun piece with KC, Brandon Weston, Chris Jenkins, Trey Patterson and build up the rivalry from old versus new. And then finally you have Mark Bryant who prior to coming on to our show this past summer was becoming a Seton hall lost legend. And now he's on the radio with Popkin prior to the start of the Nova game as well. I mean, like I said, our format is what it is. And I never want to change that element of open objectivity, but Tom, you're always going to have people that like to see things the
1: way they want to. And this Villanova loss is a perfect example. All right, Mike, before we get into that Villanova loss, let's talk about what everybody can expect on this week's podcast. This week on the podcast, we will review the loss to Villanova in Philly. We will talk about the pandemic pandemonium and its continued effect on basketball. And we will preview the upcoming games against Creighton and Nova. But first... Villanova 76 Seaton Hall 74 there was no rustiness due to extended layoffs for either team as they made nine of their first 11 three porters of the contest the first half was well played the leads went back and forth no team led by more than five points and the teams combined to shoot 52% from the field Nova eventually had a slight edge 38-35 at the break. It would continue to remain close in the second half after Colin Gillespie made two free throws after a technical foul call on Kevin Willard. But Sandro answered that with five straight points to make it a one-point game. Nova immediately responded with an 8-0 run of their own, but Chavar Reynolds stepped up and scored nine of the next 11 pirate points to keep them in it. The game would eventually become tied on a Molson layup at 74, but the game finally turned on a whistle by the refs on a loose ball with 1.9 seconds to send Cole Swider to the line for the decisive free throws. All right, Tommy, the box score for this one,
2: Sandro, 23 points, 8 of 14 from the floor, 9 rebounds, 5 assists. Jared Roden, 19 points, 8 of 13 from the floor, 17 of those coming in the first half, and he also chipped in with 4 rebounds and 4 assists as well. For Villanova, Colin Gillespie, solid 22 points, 6 of 10, 8 of 8 from the free throw line, and Jermaine Samuels, a season-high 20 points, 9 rebounds right off of recovering from COVID-19. Team stats, Seton Hall shot a blistering 55.8% for the entire game, and both teams shot 40% from 3, specifically 13 of 23 for 57% combined in the first half. Everything else was fairly even, but we were minus eight in free throw attempts for the game. And everyone's complaining about Commissioner Wright again. Tommy, turning points on this one. I'm going to go in a couple different directions here. All right. I got a whole bunch of things that I wanted to kind of highlight. Number one, I think the real key turning point is not closing out halves. It is so important. So Nova is in a funk with no field goals for six minutes with as hot as those teams were shooting in the first half. And Seton Hall is up 32 to 28 with four minutes to play. And then Roden comes down and puts up a heat check three and misses. And we have no problem with that. That, That's okay. And then on the next possession, Roden is streaking down the right side and catches a pass off the break for an open three and misses again. And he was red hot prior to that. So it's kind of frustrating. Then we get another stop and Sandro misses the front end of a one and one. And then Nova closes the half. On a 10 to three run. And to me, that was the turning point of the game, but everybody else is making out other storylines where they oh, that's the turning point, or I can't believe that happened. And people are highlighting the technical foul against Kevin Willard. And in my opinion, they're blowing it out of proportion. Seton Hall trailed by six after Gillespie made those two free throws you alluded to. But then Sandro immediately came back down and stepped up and scored five points and now they trail by one. To me, that's not a turning point. Nova goes on an 8-0 run right after Sandro's two buckets. That could be a turning point. But once again, Seton Hall ties the game up and everybody wants to make the loose ball foul with 1.9 seconds to play the turning point. But you could also argue that Seton Hall responded and got two attempts to win the game on great inbound passes by Tikal Molson. So do you agree with me? The turning point was when Seattle all had a chance to kind of give themselves some distance, kind of step on their throats again. And, and, and as
1: always, we don't do that. I don't know that you know what turning point actually means, Mike. You just look like you're lost on the freeway somewhere. I'm turning left, I'm turning right, I'm turning all over the place. Yeah, Mike, you know, there were so many things in this game. I don't know that you have a turning point with as close as this was necessarily. I don't disagree with basically any of your points, I don't know if any of the games were turned on any of these. Do do I have to kind of give you an example of what the score might have been? Roden hits one of those two threes,
2: and Sandro makes the free throws. And instead of going into the half down three, maybe we're going
1: into the half up like seven or eight. That's a big swing. That's a big swing. Mike, ifs and buts at that point. You know, that's not a turning point because we ended up going back and tying it up, and we had the ball never again with 40 seconds left in the game. So never took the lead again though never took the lead again all right mike you know let's agree on one thing this was a heck of a ball game it was. i mean i was shocked absolutely shocked i'm never going to say again that a team coming off pause is going to be rusty out of shape or anything because nova looked great nova was shot the ball well they didn't look tired at the end of the game they played a great game we came <laughs> off of a, a little bit of less of a pause just because we ended up having a game canceled but we came out strong i mean again it, that whole coming out strong is always a good look for us because it helps us build up. We're not coming, fr- we're not playing from behind, and the, you know you're always kind of running up the problems with that. But this was a great game up until about 40 seconds left, and I'm sure that we're going to get into that. When has there not been a
2: good Villanova-Seton Hall game recently? I mean, outside of us getting drubbed uh, down in Nova on National Watch Day two years ago. Historically, in recent context, they played really good games against each other. So I I get it. From our perspective, there is a bit of a rivalry building up, but I I will take a pause and go off on a tangent for a quick second. I'm driving in the car yesterday. You can shame me all you want. My son is becoming a A Nova fan because my in-laws are from South Jersey, and they sent them a Villanova T-shirt. And at eight years old, you kind of you get influenced by weird outside forces. We're listening to the SB Nation Villanova podcast, and they're talking down to us like we're their redheaded stepchild, saying that you know Seton Hall's game versus Nova was our Super Bowl. You know what? I, that really got under my skin. But it's all about perspective, right? So for us, these games have been great. And for Nova, we're just like a thorn in their side, like, go away. We either crush you
1: or we find a way to pull it out against you. You got serious familial problems, Mike. Your brother doesn't like college basketball. Your in-laws are sending your son, your pride and joy, T-shirts of the enemy. And uh, Mike, I don't know, man. You, this, this is a problem. We're going to have to take this off air, get you into some therapy.
2: But, but yes, it was a good game. And in the true spirit of a good game, you, you know, we're going to normally go into a, our blue-tinted glasses section next but I I think we should do it differently. I think a lot of the elements of this game, you can look at, like I said, from the top on, you know, from two different perspectives. So let's Take each individual element, give the blue tinted glasses, and then instead of saving it, let's give the opposite perspective and go right into Sour Grapes and gripes, and then we'll move on to the next bullet point. All right? All right.
1: Sounds good, Mike. You know, we had a pair of individual performances this week that were pretty decent. So let's start off with your boy, Sandro bro, 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 pretty pretty, pretty decent? you got to preface it by, like, downplaying it, but pretty decent? I'm not decent. downplaying it, Mike. Can, I, give you, me – you're the one that you want to prop, you want to build a stature, that's fine. But let's talk about Sandro's performance. He went 11 5 2 in the first half. As you said, he finished off 23 9 5. Stellar numbers, really good. He was really steady in his performance throughout the game. It wasn't like Mamou scored a bunch at one period and then disappeared for a long time. And he he really played well throughout the game. His touch finally returned to him. I don't remember the last time he hit a three-pointer, and he decided to hit two from the Pennsylvania Turnpike this past week. What do you mean you don't remember the last time he hit a three-pointer? He's getting his touch. This is not touch. He hit bombs from 28 feet deep. And, and the previous, like, four or five games, Mike, he was struggling with his, with his shot from deep. Eh, so he t- was finally coming back. It was nice. Anyhow, coming back, and he was, you know what? As stars should do, he was involved when the game was on the line. He was involved in the final eight points scored. He had an offensive rebound leading to a pair of free throws. He had a nice assist to Kale. He had a jumper to get to tie the game at 72, and also he had a nice pass to Takal to tie the game at 74. He was
2: involved. And he also had two nice little uh, fadeaway baseline jumpers coming out of the post. Uh, he, he did a lot of good things and you're gonna make me take the other side of the coin
1: against my boy here, yeah, that's not fair. I, I I gotta play the opposite here? F- well, fine, It's about time you did some real critical thinking about your friend here. Fine, I will be objective,
2: we'll stay with the spirit of today's episode. I will be objective to Sandro. Sandro, as great of his stat line as he was, and as influential as he was on the game, Yes, he also had an influence at times in a negative perspective. He did have another seven turnovers that were credited to him, and now that is a total of, if I'm not mistaken, of like more than 20 over the last four games. So, yeah, you know, that, that's that's a big number. His assist to turnover ratio was kind of closer to a one to one or less than a one to one, and that's normally not going to get the job done. But I, I'm going to defend his turnovers for a second, and I know you're not going to. Oh I, my I, I,
1: goodness, great! Let me have a moment. Me.
2: Let me have my moment. Come on. He had three turnovers off the dribble. And you know what I've been saying lately is we got to stop asking him to create off the dribble in the half court. He tends to be, you know, extra prone to turnovers in that scenario. He had two in the post. And I understand that this is the way the official box scores work. But he, were, he was credited with two more that I don't think are reflective of the collective seven that he had. In the first two minutes of the game, he passes to Shavar at the top of the circle, and it's just a standard pass. And Shavar lets it go right between his legs, and that gets credited as a turnover to Sandro, and Shavar is yanked from the game by Kevin Willard, and to bookend it, that last pass by Molson that goes through his hands, and I know that you said to me, it's, it's the last guy who touches the ball, but that was a turnover on Sandro. That was a That was just a tough play. It really is not a turnover in my opinion. So you probably have like five turnovers when you look at it, but the way the official box score uh, kind of reflects so He ends up with, with uh, seven instead of five, and I will get
1: to the official scorers later on in their shorting Sandro of proper stats. I, I'm so happy that while you're being objective and talking about Sandro's shortcomings in this game, you sit there and defend his seven turnovers here, Mike. So okay, so five would have made you happier. I got you. Moving on here. And by the way, let me just say, he was five for 19 in the previous set of games from three. So his three for six does look good so, I, 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 got I, got, I got you looking up numbers though
2: I'm scared <laughs> uh, how, 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 how about this I'll, I'll, I'll continue to be objective he was really hot with those two deep threes in the first half but then he comes in the second half and jacks up a 30 footer and it's like how many times are you going to be okay with Sandro taking three or more three-pointers from beyond 28 feet in a game. That's just even if he made two out of three that's that's not his game. I don't need him shooting three-pointers from that kind of distance. And to be honest, we're going to get to this in more detail. I want him going to get the ball for that final shot. Be the man. You see it, nothing's developing, just go to Shavar and be like, "Give me the damn ball."
1: I, I'm right? less I'm less worried about the that one seemed more like a heat check than anything else. If you're okay with Roden pulling up a heat check, I'm not going to sit there and bag on Sandro for pulling one up. Speaking of Roden, Mike, he had a phenomenal first half, didn't he? Absolutely. 17 points,
2: 7 of 9, 3 of 5 from 3. I, I could have been 4 of 5 or 4 or 6 from 3. You know, the uh, the score box on the, on the TV screen, were blocking his feet. We never got a true look to see if his foot was really on the line right before the half, but that's neither here nor there. He has three rebounds. Two assists as well in that first half. And he carried them early, which I thought was really important because it helped offset the red hot shooting from Nova. You're expecting them to come out and be rusty and trying to get, you know, find their way after their extended pause. But no, that's not the case. Nova hits five of seven from three point range right out of the gate. And that could have been another Creighton esque. You get punched in the mouth, and before you know it, you're down double digits, and the game gets away from you. And here he is going shot for shot with them and keeping them in that ball game. And I loved the fact that he was looking for a shot.
1: Well, and you know what? Because of the, how well he played in that first half, you were expecting a second half that would be more productive. And here's where we go with our sour grapes and gripes. How does he only get four shots in the second half, Mike? And his only make was on the fast break off of a nice little kale pass. Mike, he didn't even take a shot in the final eight minutes. Now, you know, I brought this up and our friend Jason Garrett came back and said that, hey, you know, Jay Wright did some adjustments on defense. And, you know, even post game, Jay Wright made a comment about them playing better on Jared Roden. But I thought we were the one with the chiropractor at coach. If they're doing something specifically to stop Jared Roden from getting a shot, don't you adjust? He's your hot hand. He had 17 in the first half. Yeah, but you got to put it into context again.
2: Willard doesn't run any offensive sets for him. He doesn't run anything off of screens. There's in this particular game, there were no touches in the post and not even any kind of like clear out ISO stuff where you saw four guys on one side of the court and Roden clearly taking his man with space to do whatever he wants. That didn't happen. In his eight baskets in the first half, Tom, one was a down screen from Tyree Samuel, the other eight, everything else was one-on-one and in transition and not one-on-one. Like I said, where they ISO him, where he just happened to get the ball. It was late in the shot clock. And he's like, I'm just going to elevate and go up over my guy, whether it was from three or whether it was that little dribble one, two step, you know, I think it was like a 15 foot pull-up jumper from like the right elbow. That's him creating that's not Willer going, Hey, my man's hot. Let's get him the ball. Well, that's not even in the flow of the offense at that point. That's just Jerry going, g- g- give me the ball. I- I'm hot right now. Just I'm, I'm going to take my shot. And, and in the second half, that didn't happen because those situations didn't present themselves.
1: It's almost criminal that you don't go back to him in a second half or figure out a way to get him the ball. I mean, it's just bad. It's just bad basketball. One last point, we talked about individual performances for the games. I'm going to go back and I'm going to say for a particular point in time, we had a stellar individual performance and that was from our point guard, Shavar Reynolds. Now, unlike some opinions out there that we keep banging on him, we give Shavar the credit that he deserves. The Hall was traded by nine points late in that game. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I was feeling to myself, yeah, this one's getting away. This one's slipping away. This one could turn into 15, 20 points easy.
2: Wait but I said that during the Big E's title game, you know, when they end up rallying back and Powell misses the shot at the buzzer and they were down by nine with a couple minutes to go and you're like, how could you write off the Pirates? But now with now with almost
1: like, you know, eight minutes to go, you're writing off the Pirates down nine? I wasn't writing them off. I'm telling you that there was a feeling come up on me saying, you know what, this one's slipping away. We weren't looking good at that point. Bobby, whenever they get down by nine and it looks like it's getting away,
2: I think it's over.
1: That's just, <laughs> it's, just, it's just the way I feel. I don't know what you want me to say. Oh, so, we're down nine. I believe they just pulled Mamu out for a breather. Nobody scored anything. Shavar steps up. He scored the next nine out of 11 pirate points. He had a tough little fade away against Gillespie. There was a pick and roll three with Ike, where he just wiped out both defenders on that pick. You gotta love seeing the big men set good picks. Then another pull up jumper in the lane, and he makes a decent drive, and he ends up drawing a foul and hitting the, both shots on the one and one. But he wasn't just doing it on the offensive side. He was also playing that tough defense that we needed against Kyle and Gillespie on the other end. He drew a charge against Gillespie, and there should have been a second one where Gillespie pushed off with his elbow. There was it was clear as day on the replay, but it is Nova. They're gonna get that call. Yeah,
2: I I, I kind of thought it was a good call. I mean, Jay Wright. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but Jay Wright kind of set that up. You had the Justin Moore charge. Then you had the Gillespie charge. What are the chances that on the road against Commissioner Wright, are you going to get three straight possessions with charge calls? And on the third one, it was kind of in that gray area. When there, was you, no, there was no way. There when no you way.
1: extend that offhand, Mike, he extended that arm. That's an not, easy call to make. Blow the whistle.
2: Not as much as he did on the first one or what more did prior to that. That, 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 that
1: Look, that, that, the gray area. Gray oh, area. It, it, you're already griping. I'm talking about good plays and you're griping. Go ahead. Complain about this now. F- fine. You want me to gripe? But, but let's be honest. Prior to
2: Shavar's outburst, we were getting nothing from the point guard position at all. And that includes a little cameo appearance from Bryce Aiken for 10 minutes coming off of another, you know, devastating ankle injury. Right.
1: I Uh, thought he wasn't going to play until Butler, Mike, uh, but but this is where it
2: kind of like, everyone's like, well, you know, Shavar saved us. Yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to say Shavar put us in this hole, but if he plays a balanced game, like Sandro, maybe he doesn't need to play Superman and score nine out of 11 points to kind of get us back in the game. Tom, let me, let me kind of give you some context here. In his first half, Shavar had zero points. Prior to his little mini burst, he had two points in the first 33 minutes of the game. In the first half, we were being objective and analyzing his play. He had an isolated one-on-one with Jeremiah Robinson-Earl, their
1: five, and he's our point guard. You expect your point guard to be able to take that guy off the dribble, right? You're, you're expecting your point guard to take Bigs off the dribble, even Bigs with the mobility of uh, Robinson Earl. Oh, okay, but, but he wasn't able to. But he still tries to do so anyway,
2: and then he gets the ball raked out of his hands by Slater, and it leads to an easy, fast break layup the other direction. And then later in the first half, he has an out-of-control drive, splitting two defenders, fading away to his left, and shooting back across his body with his right, and he throws a brick up off the glass. If that's anybody else like Bryce Aiken trying to find his rhythm, we are criticizing him to the gills. Oh, you got to take a shot within the flow of the offense. You got you got to do your job as a point guard. You know, j- just stick to passing the ball. So that's Shavar's really only shot of the first half because the only sh- other shot he gets credited with in the box score is that 30-foot heave that he's forced to take with only two seconds to go in the half. You know, I know that's in the box score, but to me that doesn't really count. So your point guard takes one shot. In the entire first half, he's essentially a a non. He is essentially not a threat to the other team, in terms of what he could do with the ball in his hands. Well, okay, but he could pass the ball. He could set up other guys. Well, Shavar was credited for three assists for the entire game, and, and as I always do, I go back and watch the game again. And assist number one was. One of Sandro's 28-foot bombs, where Chavar just passes it over, and you're like, "Okay, what are we gonna do?" Oh crap! Sandro just chucked it up from 28 feet. Bang! Well, that's an assist. Whether you like it or not, that that's an assist in the box score. And then I'm sitting there going, "All right, well, I, I think he passed to Roden for another three in the left corner right before the end of the half." And I'm ca- kind of waiting to see if he set that up for Roden. And I'm watching the film, Tom. Tom, guess what? That wasn't his assist. And for those people who don't want to believe me, if you DVR the game, go back and watch. Shavar passes the ball into the post. Sandro's coming across the lane and then kicks it out to Roden for the three, which ultimately ends up getting turned to that long two. And he's credited with that assist. CBS Sports, ESPN, the play-by-play. It's right there, Shavar's second assist. Sandro pass it to him. The official scorer got it wrong.
1: Sandro should have had, in my opinion, six assists and five turnovers. <laughs> All right, Mike, but let, 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 let's look at the crux of the situation here. <laughs> It, it, it comes down to this. When he plays out of his skill set, when he plays out of his comfort zone, bad things happen. When he stays within his game, good things tend to happen. And that's the difference here. You know, when he went on that little burst, he was in his game. Otherwise we're having bad, we're having bad results out of it. And, and that's, and that's something we knew from the get-go.
2: Just I'm just tired of always looking at it through the rosy blue tinted glasses. So at the end of the game, you look at Shavar's stat line, he's got three assists. He's got 11 points. He's got that little mini burst and the entire storyline is wow. You know, thank God that we have Shavar again, because without his contributions, we're getting our butts kicked. I just, I want to be objective. You know, he, he had a, a moment in the game where he was outstanding. And then he had a big chunk of the game where he really struggled and it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Sometimes we just did it with Sandro and Roden and said as great of a game that they had, they also had moments in that game where they either disappeared or they had some struggles. And I just think the criticism or excuse me, the analysis needs to be fair on both sides. So I know we've looked at both sides of the coin, Tom, on these first three points, as we did our analysis. But what happened at the end of this game to me was just downright criminal.
1: I like that you use the word criminal, Mike, because there's one thing that was going on when I got onto social media after the game, I was absolutely tearing apart how we played that last 40 seconds or so of that game. I wanted to litigate it. So how do we go ahead and litigate this part of the game?
0: In the college basketball podcast system, that end of game strategy is considered especially heinous. In San Diego, the dedicated podcasters who investigate these horrible acts are members of an elite squad known as Left Coast Pirates. These are their stories. Oh.
2: I don't. I don't know if I should compliment you for that being our best transition ever, or is it as hokey as it gets? I don't. I don't know. I, maybe. Let, maybe somewhere in the middle, Mike. All right. Let, let Let's get into breaking down this final shot sequence. Right. You know. Uh, here's what I'll do. I got. I got four components to this. I'll throw you the scenario, and then you tell me like or dislike, and then I'll kind of play the other side of wherever you go. So. Right, so
1: but before you go in, Mike. You know, I, I was thinking about this. You know, basketball more than any other game is very a symbiotic game. Everything kind of flows from one thing to another. So it's very hard to break down things and say, yes, this was the definitive decision because it kind of depends on the next part. But I just, but, but I'll no, play just, along,
2: Mike. Just, just individual elements to have some fun with it. Right. Cause it's been broken down at nauseum already. We're like the last ones to get to this breakdown. Since we do our podcast at the end of the week, waiting for the <laughs> Butler game that that didn't happen, but that's neither here nor there. All right. So. So let's start with the fact that there was no timeout call by Willard, like or dislike.
1: You know, in and of itself, I'm kind of ambivalent here. You know, it all depends on how well your team ends up running that final play. And, you know, in general, Willard likes giving a ball to his best player and everybody else clears out. He expects his best player to make a big play at that point if you're gonna get what you got afterwards you need to call timeout to make sure everybody knows what their positions are what their responsibilities are and you know i said as much and as my new friend on twitter at biff roughneck said nova didn't have a chance to set up a defense with a benefit of a huddle from jay Wright. they would have been more ready i don't i don't buy that as much as some do
2: here's my take on this one i don't think jay wright's teams need a timeout to play solid defense they are well schooled right so they and they they showed it they were prepared they were poised so yes maybe right would have come up with another little you know wrinkle if they had a timeout but that would have given Willard an opportunity to do several things in this timeout that I thought were lost it wasn't a true shot clock is off situation there was a three second differential so you have to sit there and say all right this shot's going to go up towards the end of the shot clock no matter who ends up taking it but you have to kind of keep in the back of your mind that it's got to be pretty close to end to that shot clock, because if it goes up too soon, you might have seven or eight seconds still to go on top of that. You have to remind your guys, this is a tie ball game. If we're going to take a long three, hypothetically, they're probably going to be in position to get the rebound. No going over the back. Even if they get the rebound with four or five seconds to go, they're probably not going to be able to transition, turn around, get down court and hit the game winning bucket. We go to OT. Don't do anything stupid. So Willard had the opportunity to kind of remind all the players on the court about the different elements of what was going on. And obviously we lost sight of that. So I, I think they should have called timeout. I know hindsight is 2020, and it sounds like, you know, we're playing armchair quarterback, but so many things didn't play out the way they should have. I think the timeout was warranted. Okay, next. Shavar didn't even start anything until five seconds left on the shot clock, like or dislike.
1: Okay, so this is another one of those things where it always depends. Like I just mentioned previously. So I'm gonna compare how we ran our final shot to how Xavier ran their final shot at the clock against Providence about two weeks ago. The one play we were just beaming about a few weeks ago with Adam Baum. So Xavier actually has to inbound the ball underneath their own basket with about 16 seconds left. They get it across half court at about 12 seconds and they initiate the start of the play at 10. They have a little dribble handoff to Kunkel who then gets downhill on his defender and passes it to the far corner when the double team comes. He passes it off to Paul Scruggs. Paul Scruggs gives a little ball fake, does a little drive, sees Jones at the top of the key, fires it off for a wide open jump shot. So this all depends on what you're going to run at the end of the game. You had Xavier with 16 seconds to get it across half court, start their offense. They managed to pass it around four times and then hit the final game winning shot there. With
2: 0.1 seconds to go on the clock, they needed the entire 16 seconds, right?
1: Absolutely. So as far as Shavar doesn't start anything till about five seconds left. Well, what are you running? Got Ask you, the question. You got what you got. When he starts with
2: five seconds to go, there is no way to then get Roden the ball, Sandro the ball, or even for Shavar to do anything else other than what he did was pull up for that three because
1: you started the play so late in the game. I can only come to the conclusion, Mike, that that was what they wanted to run. And that is horrendous. No, I I don't think that was the case, but but
2: let's not go there. Well, yet. How can the first, you say it's not? We're gonna talk about it. We're gonna just, just stay focused. Don't get emotional on me yet. Just hang on. The oh, question this whole was been emotional, Mike. The question was do you start the play with five seconds left on the shot clock or not? I we both agree that you should have maybe started a little bit sooner to give more of um, to to see the play develop more. And it, it just didn't have the opportunity to do so. Okay. Next next bullet point, right? So the ball doesn't go to Sandro or Roden, who are having your best games on the day, like or dislike.
1: Despise, Mike. This is, you know, in baseball, they have the analogy, don't lose on your second best pitch. You lost on your third or fourth best pitch here, Mike. It's not about Shavar getting the final shot. If Shavar gets the final shot after a play from a position that he can do some damage from, fine. That is great. That in and of itself is Awful. You never gave the ball to one your best player and two the guy who was your hottest player in the first half. It is and who is also a playmaker. It's just not a good play.
2: We agree. I'm not gonna belabor the point. I'd like I'd like to see you going down with your best punch. And and on that point, Sandro, as you mentioned earlier was involved in the last eight points of the game prior, he was making passes. He was making shots. He was making all the right moves at that point. Go down with your best guy. Even if Sandro goes a little sooner in the shot clock, I could live with, you know, going down with your best. All right. uh, Next bullet point here. So Shavar doesn't get downhill and settles for the long three off the dribble like or dislike
1: another dislike for one it was a it was a little weird of an angle where he ended up taking the shot from but you know this is where people get i think the whole situation conflated here you know shavar has hit either game winners or go-ahead shots so many times in his career the kids got alligator blood i get it you know go we can go through it all one the saint john's winner from a few years ago what was it spot up shot off of a pass the defender was right in his face and knocks him down so give him that credit but it was a good pass from mamu and he hits the game winner beautiful penn state this year another time mamu gets the ball makes a little play double team comes fires it off to a wide open Shivar. boom off a spot up jump shot off of a pass marquette it's like I'm just repeating myself. It's the same play. I'm thinking Shavar needs to send some gifts over to Mamu because Mamu's got a p- big portion of this legend of Shavar thing that everyone's trying to push as an agenda these days because he does hit the open spot-up jumper. So get the ball to Mamu, make a move. If he gets doubled and Shavar is wide open on an elbow, take the shot one we didn't need a three-pointer in that position two it wasn't something that he is comfortable or relatively good at and we've seen it time and time again
2: the reality is i i'm gonna agree with you all the spot up analysis is is spot on (laughs) but your point guard there in end game scenarios no whether your point guard whoever's got the ball in that end game scenario it is normally frowned upon if that player pulls up for a long three. So I would be giving the same criticism. If the ball went to Roden or went to Sandro and instead of attacking the basket, they settled for a long three pointer as well. Whether it was open, whether it was off the dribble, no matter what, I I don't need to settle for a long three there. You bailed out the defense. You got to try to get downhill, put pressure on the refs to make a call. Or if you get something going to the rim where the defense has to collapse Now you can crash the offensive glass and get that put back, which you see happen all the time. You know, the reason why we got the over the back calls because the three pointer allowed Nova to turn box out their guys and be in good defensive position. If a point guard gets into the lane, you could pass out. You could dish off. You can get your shot up. Maybe you get fouled or maybe you get that offensive rebound. You've taken five other options off the table by settling for the long three point attempt. So it's not just the fact that Shavar shot it himself. It's the fact that it was a three point attempt and it wasn't even a, a really great look. It was a off the dribble long, you know, probably like a 26 footer, 25, you know, 27 footer. I, I didn't like it as well. And well, it wasn't.
1: It wasn't an awfully good pick from Mamu either on that play. So it's I don't not know, like it was wide I don't know, open. I don't know what it was. Mamu was like
2: kind of mishmash. Whatever. Let, but Mike, before on.
1: we go on, you brought up the foul at the end, and this is one last piece of uh, evidence that I want to bring into it. And we had lots of people complaining that that's not what you call at that point in the game. So let's take a look at what would have happened if they had not blown the whistle. Why did they blow the whistle, Mike? Because the Nova kid. Gets knocked to the ground now whether it was a bump whether He was off bounce. You got to call that You got to blow that whistle with 1.9 seconds. Why? Because if he falls to the ground with the ball in his hands, that's a travel. And if you don't call that travel at that point, you're going to have every Seton Hall fan screaming at the top of their lungs, why are we not getting that call at that point? We should have the ball underneath our own basket with 1.9 seconds so we could pull off another Sandro miracle like we did against Butler. That is why you blow that whistle there.
2: All right, so, so you're asking me if the foul call was fair or unfair. And for the last time, I agree. I think it was the fair call. It was not the call that made you feel good. It was not the call that you want to see that game decided on. But in the moment, you're right. The minute that Swider goes to the floor, it has to be a travel or it has to be a foul. If he is getting knocked around and stays on his feet and the refs call in that moment, a ticky tacky kind of like bump or reach in, then yes, everybody can scream to the heavens everyone screamed to the heavens because emotionally you're invested in that game and you want to see it ended by somebody making a play on the offensive side, not kind of getting bailed out, but you're right. I want the ball back. If swiders on the floor and it's not called to travel, I'm, I'm complaining because I want the ball back with one more shot to win the game. I, I, I get
1: it. I and get the it. comparisons to the final foul call in the 89 championship game do you not even have a clue of how historical relevance works? Yeah. Are you out of your mind? The calls aren't even close.
2: Uh, I, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm go- so angry. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Let's let's continue to talk about how Seton Hall responded there because you want to say positive? How about those two passes from Molson? Oh my goodness. I mean, to, to make one of those is crazy. The fact that he made both spot on on the money and got his two chances to win
1: that game. That's pretty impressive. Didn't I read somewhere? He was a high school quarterback. I mean, that's the kid you yeah, want in there throwing did, that final pass. Did,
2: didn't I read something that you should put something on the? Uh, you should put a player on the inbound passer. Uh, uh, hey, Kentucky, <laughs> hey, Kentucky. Uh, oh, geez. All right. But, but everyone then also kind of breaks it down and says, but Sandro dropped the ball. I'm going to go back to that. Villanova podcast, I was listening to, and they were just bashing him like butterfingers. Oh, you choked. You know what? Yes, I understand they hit him in the hands, but Jim Support Arkle did a really nice job uh, analyzing this game. And he's basically sitting there going, Look, Sandro's kind of pushing off. The, the defender in the small, of the back and try to kind of keep it concealed from the refs. So it doesn't get called for like an offensive foul there. So his hands are down. And then all of a sudden, as he creates that last second separation, he's got to reach up and try to catch this ball. And it's coming in like a missile and it's not perfectly where he wants it to be, which you can't blame Nelson for that. And he's kind of got to reach back a little bit and he just misses the ball. I don't, I don't think he thought he was going to get that good of a chance to catch a pass for the game winning layup. And I, I just don't think you should be criticized to that extreme for the way that that went down.
1: No, that that you know that's a tough pass to, to haul in there. You're talking about 75-foot pass. It hits you in the hands, but there's a lot of things going on. It's not like he got a, a clean catch at it. So, yeah, I don't blame Sandro for missing it. I, I could understand why he was upset. He looked really upset after he missed it where to try to fight back from the guys where where to where to not put your head down after those free throws were 1.9 seconds in the, left in the game where to fight through it though
2: all right but you know speaking of fighting through i felt like kevin had to fight through his post game because he had a lot of emotion he had a lot of things to say for the most part i thought he handled it well but you know i'm i'm not going to we're not going to skip our
1: favorite segment
2: and now deep thoughts with Kevin Willard.
1: Okay, Mike, reporters after the game asked him what this loss actually told him about his team, and here's what he said. The same thing I've been saying, I like the way we're progressing. We didn't play well defensively early. I think the layoff hurt both teams. We didn't play well defensively either. Not the way we've been playing. But I like the way we've been progressing offensively. I like what the guys are doing. It was great to get Bryce back. I couldn't believe I got 10 minutes out of him. I was really excited about that. So I think staying healthy and we keep on getting better. We're progressing at a good pace. All right, so so you felt like you were getting
2: upset again? My my, my turn to get upset again, all right? I'm going to really just rip this apart. I think the layoff hurt both teams. He didn't just try to compare their 27-day layoff with two main guys getting hurt and COVID to us not playing for 13 days. Did he really? I think that's what he said. I also can't believe, he goes, I couldn't believe... We got 10 minutes out of Bryce Aiken. Tom, either his ankle was healed and he could play or he couldn't. He shouldn't be winded from 10 minutes of play. I'm over it already. Oh, he's not not in game shape yet. Bryce wants to play. This is it. This is the end of his collegiate career. He's not coming back for another season, folks. So you think Bryce wants to work his way back into the rotation 15 games into the season when basically two-thirds of the year is almost over? speaking of two-thirds of the season almost being over we're progressing at a good pace you know the way that the schedule is playing out with the pandemic and everyone being costed games on their schedule when does he want them to peak when does he expect them to actually get to the point where okay now we're playing good basketball it's game 21 and we got
1: two games left on the slate oh we're rocking and rolling now tom come on man you know you know mike you know what i can't believe mike I can't believe you didn't use the quote that he gave after JP Pelsman asked about the morality team. And he said, we lost a game, not a puppy. I thought uh, that was a spectacular uh, quote. I, I'm,
2: I'm trying to stay even keeled. I'm not going to touch that one. We are moving on because as much as I didn't want to see that in the quote book, let's talk about whoa. Did you see that on the court? And well, Tom, you, that, that, that is a transition for the record, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mike, what what's 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 impressive was we played really well in this game. But there weren't really a whole lot of woe-did-you-see-that moments. I think we're going to have to go with one of Sandro's deep threes.
2: You were telling me in the middle of the game that you wanted to include the kale to Roden on the fast brink dunk. Still want to do that?
1: You know, I mean, I was trying to come up with things because there weren't that spectacular jump-out-of-your-chair kind of feel. So I was trying to just come up with anything that was positive.
2: I have an issue with all of a sudden we're at that point with, you know, watching this team where you feel excited that we executed on a fast break. You just
1: don't like Kale, man. That's the problem,
2: Uh, man. Well, there's nothing about Kale. The Kale dribbles up the right side. He makes a nice pass to Roden. He splits his defenders and and throws in a dunk. It's a three on two fast break. You should be scoring on a three on two
1: fast break. And you're like, that's a nominee for the war. Did you see that? Come on, (laughs) enough already. Well, Mike, Uh, since nothing impressed you during the game, What did or didn't impress you from the announcers during the game?
2: (laughs) Tommy, uh, as we said numerous times, there is not just the scope of the game itself. We will go beyond the, the general broadcast and go into the pre and post game to pick on the mic flops and mic drops. And I felt like we were mushed. You're always yelling at me saying I'm Mikey Mush, but we were mushed by Steve Lavin and Donnie Marshall in the pregame, Tom. Steve Lavin says the following, there is no doubt that Villanova's rhythm isn't going to be where it was prior to the interruptions because of COVID-19. And then Donnie Marshall immediately backs it up and says, I gotta be honest. I mean, most games we see these two teams play, it's always Villanova who I think has the edge. And I think Seton Hall wins this game. I don't think Villanova has a chance between the rust, between them navigating through the injuries, during all the time that they've been off.
1: Oh man. Oh man! Mike Mike, I can't bag on these guys. Oh, Donnie Marshall just echoed exactly what I said at the last at the end of last podcast when I talked about my predictions. It's exactly what I expected. And and you know what? Nova came out, played a great game. So kudos. But Donnie Marshall, who I'm not a big fan on in-game, at halftime, he had a pretty good uh comment. So let's play that.
2: If this is what it looks like to to have a month off, maybe every team in America should get a month off. They're really this system, and as much as I love these players and, and uh, you know, with all due respect to these players, this system is plug and play. You, you throw guys in, Jay Wright, you gotta give him a lot of credit because he just, he simplifies it for his guys. Now, you need guys who can make shots, that's obvious, but the spacing is terrific, they're sharing the basketball, those two things are, to me, are, the, are two of the hardest things to do when you've been off for so long because you're so anxious to get back and see some fresh blood, if you will. Keep spaced out, I'm going to share the basketball plug and play system. Jay, right? Kudos to Jay, Wright. So Tommy, you agree with Donnie?
1: Kudos to Jay, right? Mic drop, mic drop for Donnie Marshall. You know, like I said, I don't like Donnie during the games. I have, I find him a tough listen. This was a really good point he brought up. I mean, There was no reason why Nova should have came in and played as well as they did. Take Lavin's quote at the before the game where he said, there's no doubt that Nova's rhythm isn't going to be where it was prior to the interruption. How good did they look then, Mike? Because they looked stellar today.
2: I think that's where some of the frustration comes in because we go back to the beginning of the season for us and we already set the, the framework for, hey, they haven't had the chance to play, practice, to the extent where they need to be in rhythm or they understand the system, etc., etc. And then you got Donnie Marshall going, this is a blue blood program. Now a top five national program. And as great as these guys are, the Jay Wright recruits, I have the confidence no matter who you plug into that system, they're going to be elite. Do we ever say that about a Kevin Willard offensive system where we have the confidence to just plug in the next set of guys are stepping up as juniors and seniors or we recruit and add into our system do have we ever said oh you know the the system that willard runs it's clockwork it's it's a well-oiled machine just like creighton just like nova and the answer is honestly no we're always trying to figure it out and find our way as the season goes along and that's just not the case with some of our elite competition and I'm throwing this back at you, Tommy. You said at the top of the show, the purpose of what we were trying to accomplish with our podcast is to hold Seton Hall to the standard of the best programs.
1: Well, you know, Mike, they do run a different offense than, say, a Nova or a Creighton. I mean, they are more star dependent. They're, they, you know, so when you are more star dependent as opposed to being a more of a system. Then it's harder to take a guy off the bench and say, "Hey, guess what? You're gonna play the Miles Powell role now." Hey, guess what? You're gonna play the Sandro role now. So it's it's a different kind. It's a different form of system. I get it. So it it comes with different sets of problems when when you when you have situations like this. So speaking of problems. The pandemic was not going away. Oh, man.
2: All right. Pandemic pandemonium for this week. I mean, the the list just keeps on going on, Tom. And you want me to stay positive. But, you know, as we get to this segment week after week, I'm still concerned. I am highly concerned about how we get to the finish line of this college basketball slate. Butler pauses, causing us to not play this game this past Friday. But guess what? It was a false positive. They're back to playing on Tuesday, and we lose out on, on, that, on that opportunity to kind of go out to Indianapolis and, and get an opportunity to win one of the easier games in our upcoming slate, even though we said there's no such thing as an easy game in the Big East. We also now are getting to the point where you and I have s- debated this. Are we going to make up a game at Butler? Is Xavier
1: going to fly back to the East Coast to make up the game that we missed earlier in the season? Your thoughts on that? I I think at this point, it's going to be dependent on what else happens through the season. So like you mentioned, we talked about this last week and you and and I said, there's no way that Xavier ends up coming out here. You made the mention that, well, what if they've got a couple games in the area? So say they have to play us and St. John's or maybe even Georgetown. Yeah. At that point, I could see them making a little two game trip dependent on. What else goes on for the rest of the season? Depended on what? But, they play but, five games. You know play don't play games, man. I, I prefer to be safe than sorry. You know, you get a false positive. Hey, it's better than coming in. Look at what happened to Michigan. Michigan to completely shut down its athletic program a day after they played Purdue. I'd rather be on the other end of that coin. Oh,
2: it's the new strain. It's, it's the new strain now. So that's, that's another wild card that we're right, introducing. To right, that but, scenario. but
1: would you rather be on the flip side of Butler finding a, a false positive and postponing the game at this point, oh, I, or Butler coming in infected and potentially infecting one of your players?
2: I'm not mad at Butler. I'm just frustrated. I'm just, you know, I, you watch a program like Mommet. They've now paused for the fourth time. I mean, geez, how would you like to be a fan of them? Yeah, but yet even though they've paused for a four-time time, time they played 11 games. So so maybe the Mac kind of figures something out with this playing this back-to-back Friday-Saturday kind of slate, even though you had to play at the same uh, opponent's arena back-to-back nights. It's just about playing games at this point.
1: Yeah, but, but the Mac, Mac's a little more regionalized. It's a little easier to pull off a situation like that. I mean,
2: eh. The concept is we're playing neutral site basketball because of no fans, so why can't we kind of – take their model even down the stretch here and say, you know what? You got to play back-to-back nights. You just got to play back-to-back nights. Forget about the preparation. You you just got to play. Speaking of playing and when teams play, this is going to bother me. And you're going to tell me you got to go with the flow. It's, It's a unique season. But the NCAA announced their game dates for the tournament. And the first four, Tom, and I understand why they're playing the first four on the opening Thursday. You need the time to do all the testing. But the first four, which you tell me is is just BS to begin with, is being played on that sacrilegious first day where the tournament normally takes place. And then they're going to play the first round on Friday and Saturday? I mean, I'm supposed to be taking off of work on Thursday and Friday and watching endless college basketball, and they're playing
1: the first round on Saturday? Oh, Mike, anything that throws you off your normal schedule just gets you bonkers you Tony, know what, mike? I, oh, I, I can't I do agree. this you know what mike i'm gonna agree with you get rid of the first four start your schedule on thursday there you go mike there you happy that's what i'm saying is nothing sacred anymore is nothing, nothing sac- sacred sacred I, I can't do this you love the first four and you're talking about nothing sacred get out of here We've belabored about this past week enough. Let's look into next week. But next week is just going to be a pair of rematches for teams that we've seen recently. We're going to see later on in the week, we'll see Nova again. But coming this Wednesday, we're going to run into the Blue Jays that put a big beating on us in Omaha by 36 points.
2: Yeah, but it's a different perspective as we do these previews because you've seen both teams prior and now you have the rematch. So normally when we're kind of going behind enemy lines early in the year, we're kind of getting some behind the scenes look at, you know, how they've gotten to this point or, you know, how their team is constituted. And now you have that familiarity. So you want to kind of pull from the experience the first time out. And if there's anybody that does the analytics uh, when they cover their team, John Niatawa is one of the best out there. So I've always liked I like John last year. I'm excited to have
1: John on again. So we had an opportunity to talk to John Niatawa on Friday night before Creighton ended up playing Yukon and beating him on Saturday. So this is gonna be an interesting listen. He covers Creighton Athletics, the College World Series, and much, much more for the Omaha World Herald. Please welcome back to Left Coast Pirates, John Niatawa. John, how are you this evening?
0: Man, I'm pumped up. That intro was phenomenal. <laughs> thank you for the energy. Like, I feel like I could run through a wall right now. So, yeah, I'm glad up, to be here.
1: I'm over it, John. He
2: does it for every guest, man. It's No, it's, it's was
1: it was just for you, John. I don't do this. I'm going to pretend.
0: I'm pretending that it was just for me. And so I'm going to be all smiles for the rest of the night.
2: Well, well, thank you once again, John, for joining the show. Much, much appreciated.
0: Yeah, no problem at all. No problem at all.
2: All right, so you're in good spirits. So I hate to kind of bring down the mood, but obviously, COVID is kind of a black cloud over everything. And we've been starting off every episode, making sure that our guests are doing well and handling everything in their environment relative to the pandemic. So, how are you, friends, and family dealing with COVID out in Omaha?
0: Yeah, just hanging in as best as we can. I'm lucky, though, because uh, my wife and I, we had a son a year ago today, actually.
2: Congratulations. So Congratulations. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So, he's been just an incredible blessing uplifting us every day and we've got to spend a ton of time with him so like i have a lot of friends who have kids who've said you know those they the years fly by or the months fly by and and you'll you'll look back on it and it's just a blink of the eye but honestly this last year has been long but it's been a good thing (laughs) it's been a good thing though because we've we've kind of watched him grow slowly gradually and and seen just sort of the progression and really got to take it in soak it in and so it honestly it feels like it's been ages since he was born, uh, but I think that's a good thing because, like I said, he's been uh, he's been such a joy to have around. So that's that's my update. Uh, like it's been tough. I'm not gonna lie, but but you know we we do have some good news that we've been able to celebrate. How,
2: how's the sleep? That's what we always like to joke around with our guests when they say they've had their first one. How's mm. the sleep going?
0: Actually, really good. Now, I will say, everyone that I spoke to. I like, maybe I need to find better friends who are more honest or something, but like everyone underrated the difficulty, the strain, uh, the sleep deprivation that I was going to have to endure for months, zero through three. Like that was so hard. Like I don't, (laughs) no one prepared me for that. Like I, I had to go to all my buddies, my parents, everybody like, what, where were you guys at? (laughs) Um, that was difficult. But eh, since the summer, it's been pretty good. I can't complain. But those first few months, man, like, oh, my gosh. Like, uh, you know, and, and the, the frustrating thing was trying like as a dad, you're like, I can't do anything. Like I'm basically <laughs> a janitor right now, you know, just like cleaning up all the stuff around the house, diapers, everything, uh, washing dishes. But I, I honestly can't help very much. So it was humbling, a little frustrating, but uh, we made it through.
1: Well, that's great to hear there, John. You know, sticking in the uh, COVID mindset here, I've, I've been following you on Twitter and you've had some interesting takes uh, regarding the Big East Tournament. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you were saying that you're actually questioning whether it's a smart idea to even hold the tournament. Can you expand upon that?
0: Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love the Big East Tournament. I'm actually a Midwest guy, a Big Ten guy. I grew up in Big Ten country. So I was a little skeptical of like, is it really you know, does it, is it worth the hype? You know, oh, is it, the is. Hype?
2: oh it is,
0: it is a hundred percent. Like, uh, I've had a blast going there and I'll tell you what, f- semifinal Friday might be one of the greatest events of in, co- in the whole college basketball scene. Uh,
2: I'll, I'll debate you when the big East was the big East quarterfinal Thursday was one quarterfinal day. Thursday, even better. Oh yeah. Okay. So oh, yeah.
0: like, maybe we can get a taste of that in the coming years now that UConn's back in there. Um, I just felt that energy on Friday, on that Friday. So, um, But yeah, so like, I'll, I'll miss it. And, and obviously it'll be different um, even if they, if they do decide to have it, but my thought was just the risk involved. You've got teams that want to play in the NCAA tournament. Why add a, uh, uh, you know, you're traveling to the travel piece, I guess, isn't as concerning because they all fly charter, but uh, you get into a, a different city, you're moving around, it's condensed population, um, you know, you're interacting with I'm sure they're gonna try to keep teams separate, but they're staying in the same hotel. Like you never you're just gonna be uh your 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 the amount of contacts will be higher being at a different place on the road. And while I'm sure they're gonna take every measure to keep it safe, you it's you you can't argue that the risk isn't elevated. And and for a lot of teams, especially teams that are gonna be in the NCAA tournament that that felt feel comfortable with their at-large bid, you know, what's the point? If if you were unfortunate to have a player contract the virus. Like let's just run this scenario. Say a player gets the virus in New York city hops on a plane with his teammates and goes back to Omaha or Cincinnati or Indianapolis. Um, and then once, you know, the, then the team's like, okay, well, we, we want to be in the NCAA tournament in a week. We got to test positive as a team seven times to get to Indy. Like if, if, if they suddenly reveal that one player tests positive, like the whole team's got to shut down. And that to me just seems like such a risk uh, in in this time. Um, so, you know, no, no, likely no fans in the building at in Madison Square Garden. I get that there's a TV component and they've got to fill those slots and, and there's a revenue generated revenue that's generated there. But to me, the risk is just not worth, worth it. So we'll see what they decide. I, I'm I'm sure they're just going to, the, the way that it's been, op, the way that college basketball has operated this year, they've kind of just, um, it's kind of been business as usual, almost, you know, in terms of the structure of the season and the schedule. And they just, they, they sort of just said, look, we're going to deal with the hiccups and just keep going, keep motoring through. And uh, so that's probably what's going to happen, honestly, and just cross your fingers and hope no one gets it.
2: And look, it's New York city. I realize Tom always jokes, we're going to put low Jack on these kids and make sure that they don't leave the hotel room. I know the coaches are going to be all over them and I know the city is going to be pretty much shut down, but I'm tempted to go out and take a look around. No. I would be,
0: but I don't know. Like, if you know that if, if you're a player and you're thinking, "Well, is this the difference between us playing in the NCAA tournament or not?" Like, hmm, maybe I, maybe I'd be careful. It's just, it's the timing of it. It that that's it. Like, if they did the Big East tournament in the end of February, I'd be cool with that. But you're talking about the turnaround time that the tournament ends on that Saturday selection Sundays the next day. And then teams are going to start reporting to Indian Indianapolis on Monday for the NCAA tournament. Like it's just such a quick,
2: there's, um, no, more, there's no margin for, I, I get it. No more. Yeah. For
0: right. Exactly. So I, I wish, like I said, kind of alluded to, I wish it decision makers could have been a little bit more creative with the schedule and mix some things around a little bit, like pushing the biggies tournament up to mid February, which seems like totally unconventional and weird, but like, that to me would have been a nice solution they you could the, maybe they, they maybe a even two week
2: gap right they left a two week gap
1: to do that <laughs> right well, you right? can
0: maybe even put it like maybe it's a bubble type setting you know and 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 uh, condense it even more and, and try to play more games like not just a single elimination thing but um let the teams that got that lose play each other and and so they can get the most out of it um i, I think there's an op- missed opportunity there now I, i'm not in charge of the finances and and the books and I know that's expensive a lot of money but it it, it feels like it might have been worth the investment uh, this year given all the circumstances we're dealing with but well this got this got
1: Mike and I thinking about these games that Seton Hall's missed in the recent weeks you know we were supposed to play Butler on Friday night that got postponed due to the COVID a couple weeks ago we were supposed to play Xavier and now the question is does Xavier take a trip at the end of the season just to make up that game? And then does Seton Hall turn around and fly all the way back out to Indiana just to make that game up? I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense.
0: Especially if you think like at some point, like they're going to have to cram these games in at some point. Eventually you're going to run out. Of, yeah, I know they built in some bye weeks to help, you know, uh, prepare for the possibility of makeup games and make up dates, but you're going to run out of room. So either you're going to, what are you going to try to play three games a week? which is more travel and back and forth and interactions and potential risk. and then campuses are going to start opening up in, in various spots across the conference in February. I mean, yeah, it I don't know, I don't know what the right answer is, but mm. it, it it certainly seems that like what they're doing now, it might be sustainable, but if it is, it, you're, you just got lucky.
2: <laughs> and what, what, what if you're Villanova and you've run the table and now you have to make up five games? What's there to gain for them at that point?
0: Oh, for sure, right? Right? Yeah, I mean, no reason. Um, I, I'd be surprised if Villanova gets to 20. Like, like it just doesn't seem feasible we, at this point. We'd we'll
1: be surprised if uh, DePaul gets to nine.
0: <laughs> DePaul gets to nine. Are they on a pause now, too?
2: No, it just seems like everybody that they do play is now on pause. <laughs> That's they they right. just got bad luck.
0: Yeah, uh, they it, it it seems like it's well, it seems like everyone's been hit at some point.
2: All right, John. People are tuning in to hear you talk about Creighton and we're belaboring about the Paul here. I right? let, let let's get down to business. So Creighton currently ten and four overall, six and three in Biggie's play, tied for second overall in the standings with Seaton Hall. As we head towards this rematch against the Pirates in Newark next Wednesday, a lot has changed with the Blue Jays since they ran Seaton Hall out of Omaha by thirty six over two and a half weeks ago. You know, now they've lost two out of three. You had the setback at Butler in overtime. And then you played the game against Providence in which they didn't lead at any junction within that game. You know, plus before they have this rematch underway with Seton Hall, they got to have a top 25 battle versus UConn on Saturday. Is there a mini slide developing here for Creighton? And should the fans be concerned about it?
0: Oh, I think Creighton's already in that slide right now. Um, and like you said, UConn's coming to town. We're recording this before the UConn game, so we'll see what happens. Maybe they can break out of the funk a little bit against UConn. But honestly, I think the slide started right after the season Hall game. Maybe the Jays felt a little bit too good. That was their best performance of the year, by the way. Um, they played – God, I uh, hope uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> right? They played They played their best on both ends of the floor. And so it was, a, it was like a full – that it was kind of what they were waiting for. They've had segments and stretches and games where they've looked really good on defense or looked really good on offense. Um, haven't been able to sustain it. And in that game they did. And so, you know, maybe they patted themselves on their back too much. I don't know. Maybe it's just part of the uh, ebbs and flows of a season. Like you can't play your best every night, whatever it was, like Marcus Segorowski wasn't in for the, the, the following game against uh, St. John's their best player. Um, he tweaked a hamstring, and so he didn't play. But you could see some signs of while well, they still like. I mean, they, they scored ninety.
1: They scored I, ninety. I, I, see signs. I, I would I'm, love to see signs when someone, we scored ninety. Someone's getting spoiled, John. I'm just saying. <laughs>
0: Def, I was going to say defensively. They scored right, ninety, right. good, but defensively they had like just little fractures that you were just kind of like, hmm, is that is that is that worrisome? And, and turns out it was because against Butler they weren't great on that end. And, uh, and, 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 and against Providence, at least to start the game defensively, they kind of let the Friars do whatever they wanted and they set a tone and then Creighton was kind of battling uphill to get back in it. So, um, I don't know. I mean, the Jays didn't shoot it well against Providence. I mean, that was, they shot 17% from three point range, which is one of their worst shooting nights in, since they joined the conference, you know, like those are rare. Um, it's hard to win when you do that, obviously, and so you could just chalk it up to just that and, and against Butler, the Jays didn't shoot it. Well, either it's a good shooting team and they've had great nights, but those two, they didn't. So maybe, maybe it is all that it like shooting cures a lot of ills. Right. Um, but I do think that the players feel like there's some, I don't know, maybe it's focus, energy, effort, some of the intangible things that are really crucial for for them defensively because they don't have a lot of size they don't have a lot of length like they got their, their athleticism is fine. Um, they have to they have to bring all those other, you know, the grit, the toughness. They got to be there um, from the jump ready to go. And, and they 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 didn't feel like they were against Providence and Butler and, and for portions of the game against St. John. So that'll be the question if they can get back to the get get back to that against UConn, then obviously bring it to Seton Hall because they'll need it.
1: Okay, let's focus in a little bit more on the offense. I know you said the Seton Hall game was probably their best performance, but even outside of that, they've been doing pretty well. They've got four players that are averaging double figures with Mitch Ballack just sliding underneath that double figure mark at nine points per game. They rank nationally in the top 40 in the following categories. Points per game, three-point field goals made and attempted, assists per game, and they've broken the 90-point threshold five times already. However, there are some concerning trends developing here. You know, as they were last year, ranked nationally in three-point field goal percentage at 38%. The last six conference games, they've been only shooting 27% from three. So is there any rationale to why the team has gone cold from behind the the arc with the exception of that Seton Hall game?
0: I was going to say, is it 27% even with like whatever that was, 55 against Seton Hall?
2: 13 to 24. 13
0: to 24. Oh, yeah. When the ball moves and and they get into it actually, you know what, what, with Creighton so far this year, it's kind of been, if they, if they're, when they're on, they're on from a shooting perspective, Um, at least in big East play, they've had four games in big East play where they've shot 29% or worse from three yet. They're still fourth in the conference in league play at 37% from three. So you, you okay if if you got four games under twenty nine percent, well what do the other games look like? They look a lot like that Seton Hall one where they've been where they were hitting everything. So they they'd like to find some more consistency where they're not as as up and down as as that. Um but yeah, I mean their offense it they're they're really versatile. You mentioned ha- having multiple guys in double figures. They can they can beat you in a lot of different ways. So if you try to take away one or two guys, then they, they can adjust on the fly and and go at you um with with different weapons um Marcus Zagorowski is 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 a key though because of his ability to play make and, and get guys involved and kind of run the show so um he was really good in that Seton Hall game I think that was one of his one of his better games of the season and um and so they're going to need a, a big effort from him obviously again against Seton Hall but but this matchup's so tough I mean you guys know this like for the Pirates it's just a tough matchup and, and sometimes it I, I, a lot of times I feel like it just amplifies Creighton's strengths because the Jays play this small ball style and they can get Seton Hall's bigs moving and force them into some mismatch situations. They have to keep up with these guards who are moving up, with pace. You get me upset,
2: John. You get me upset. I, <laughs> I, I, I know. We're going to talk about this later in the episode. we got a couple questions for you, but I, I don't even want to go there yet, but I, I don't like it when another team forces another good team out of what they do. Mm-hmm. So but I, I want to stick with what you were saying with Zegarowski. I want to talk about the consistency. So, Zegarowski is clearly the leader on this team. Biggie's preseason player of the year, expectations placed on his shoulder. And his numbers are down a little bit as well. Shooting 41% from the floor when he was at almost 50% last year. His scoring's down just a tick, 16 to 14 a game this year. You know, is he pressing a little bit, trying to be the man with the loss of Tyshawn Alexander?
0: There might be a little bit of that. I mean, I think he knows that there was some, there's more attention on hit on him going into the year. The spotlight was brighter. And that's, that's a situation he hasn't been in. He was an under regarded recruit out of high school. And then obviously came to Creighton. There's not a lot of fanfare when he got here from from a national perspective anyway. And so now finally he's getting some love and how do you handle that? There's I saw, I think there's a a piece that it might be legitimate, but also he he came off off season surgery. So he was sidelined, he was rehabbing basically all through July. And Creighton didn't return like Creighton didn't do anything in the summer with its team. And so the Jays got back in August. And so they they start but they weren't like practicing regularly with workouts until You're
2: talking began. you're talking about the meniscus that he had right before yeah, the, he had hey, that John's meniscus. game, right?
0: Right. He had in the, he actually injured in the Seton hall game at the very like one of the very last plays um so he just hadn't I feel like he just didn't have a lot of practice reps that's that's what what the coaches thought and that's what he thought it was just he just needed more in-game reps and it with the weird offseason the weird preseason Creighton at one point had to pause like pretty much everyone else where they didn't practice and he missed a little bit of time uh, with like minor bumps and bruises so like he just needed reps and so that might be Maybe, maybe more than anything, maybe that's, that's what you point to is in terms of the numbers being down. But uh, what I saw at the start of the month uh, before he had the little hamstring pull uh, was really promising. I thought he had settled in and and found his groove again. So um, I think he's in store for a pretty strong second half uh, of the season. So I'm, I'm eager to see what he does.
1: Well, the team itself has looked great so far this year. You know, they were predicted to challenge Nova for the top spot in the conference, and everybody was choosing them to be probably a borderline top 10 team nationally. And this is somewhat surprising as they lost one of their biggest pieces from last year, Tyshawn Alexander, who was all Big East. So how big of a loss was Alexander in terms of trying to maintain that status with the returning core?
0: I think it's shown up a little bit offensively late in games. Um, they, like I said, they have a lot of weapons. They have a lot of vets. So no one's scared to take the the last shot or be the go-to guy. But when Tyson was there, he was the guy. So there was no dispute about it. Like he was going to make the big time play that needed to be made. And I think they've maybe sort of had to adjust a little bit without him in there. And you can kind of look at the way that Creighton's finished games at times this year um, where they've, hit a little bit of a law from a scoring perspective and haven't been able to put teams away. Now they've won some of these games close. Like they blew a lead against Providence and still won. Um, they found a way to battle against UConn, still won, blew a lead against Xavier, still won. Uh, obviously Butler, they blew a lead and lost, but like, I think that's where they miss him. Honestly, just like his, he's kind of got that killer mentality and, and they're trying to replicate that and recreate that. And, and he was a really dynamic, player efficient score defensively though he was one of the better defenders in the big east but they found a way to cover up and i think Everyone's gotten a little bit better. That's helped. Uh, Denzel Mahoney has improved as, as a perimeter defender, but they've also added some rim protection. Ryan Kalkburner's a freshman who can block shots as a seven-footer, and Christian Bishop, their small ball center, he's only six seven, but he's done a better job at like knowing when to read and rotate and uh, get up there and protect the rim. So rim protection, a little bit of improvement f- collectively from everyone else has helped, helped cover up uh, some of the things that they were missing with him defensively, but I don't know. I feel like... His go-to guy sort of making the big-time play uh, late in games from a scoring perspective, they do miss that.
1: You know, who I've been impressed with has been the combo of Denzel Mahoney and Christian Bishop. Christian Bishop just seemed to be finding that basket in that first game early on and getting easy buckets. But which one of these two do you think has stepped up and been more important uh, with the loss of Alexander
0: well, actually, can I give a different name as oh, a guy who, who's Please. actually stepped up? Because those two guys have been important, definitely. You
1: can't go with Jefferson, aren't you?
0: Yeah. Uh, he's been the most consistent guy. And so that's kind of why I bring him up because that's sort of what you need, right? When you're talking about replacing a vet, a guy who, who you counted on and relied on, you need someone to step up and be there um, bringing it every night. And he's done that um, on both ends of the floor. Uh, he, he's found a way to create some havoc and get his hand on, on, uh, on pass in, in, in passing lanes, you know, rip the ball away from guys. So he's stealing a little bit more, helping them on the glass, chasing down loose balls. I mean, I don't, I don't know. In, in, in Creighton's realm, this play really stuck out against Seton Hall. Uh, last season at Seton Hall, he dove on the floor for a loose ball and, and, and it was like five minutes left to go in the game in New Jersey and, and dished to Marcus Segarowski for a layup. And it's kind of like an iconic moment for the Jays that in that championship season, where they shared the title with seeing Hall and Nova, like, his energy is infectious, and uh, and he's up to scoring game too. You know, just his ability to put the ball on the floor and take advantage of mismatch and extra mismatches and extra space. Everyone's paying attention to Zagorowski and Balak If they want to leave him on the three-point line, well, that gives more room for Damian Jefferson to roam and attack and win one-on-one matchups. So he's been big. I, I think he's kind of been the guy that stepped up um, and and improved his game the most.
2: Well, obviously, you know, we we talked about this. If you want to beat Creighton, the easy recipe for success is to limit their success behind the three point line. But another way to kind of knock off the Jays is to kind of let your big man go to work. You know, Jalen Wilson goes for 23 and 10 in their loss to Kansas. Justin Lewis was one rebound shy of both him and Dawson Garcia posting double doubles in the loss to Marquette. And most recently, Nate Watson goes off and has a career high 29 on 12 of 19 from the floor. Obviously, Creighton wants to play the five-out attack and cause mismatches, but can they consistently beat a team that wants to commit to pounding the ball inside?
0: They can, but it does become more difficult. Uh, I think Providence provided a nice blueprint of how you want to attack Creighton offensively. Uh, Just be relentless in your sort of commitment to giving the ball to your big guy. Uh, they, that's what they, that's what they did against the Jays. They got, they're fortunate. They got a couple guy a couple of Creighton's bigs in foul, foul trouble. So that may have taken away some of the Jays aggressiveness for the rest of the game. And at times Creighton was playing with five guards, just having to find a way to fight and keep this big mammoth dude out of the paint. And they didn't do a great job of it. Obviously he finished with 29 points. So, I mean, it, that's the best way to counteract their small ball lineup. You got to go right at him and, and, uh, and hope that you can, you know, establish some interior presence and beat them on the glass, and maybe take some of their willpower away by, um, you know, out-muscling them for rebounds and and, and things of like that. So, and gaining some momentum that way. So, um, that'll be it'll be interesting. I don't know. You guys know better than me. Does Seton Hall play through its bigs as much, like on the block? Not not as much, right? Mamu's more. Well, Mamu well, can do it, should, it, but
1: yeah, should play from the block. But you know, things happen. <laughs> you, you know, you know the guys get get enamored with that three point shot. You know, Mama's mm-hmm. European. He wants to be, he Mamo wants to hit, be Doncic. She doesn't want to be the guy on the block. He
2: had but, two from like twenty eight feet in the last game. I mean, it's not like he can't do it, but yeah, it, it looks better than going inside and hitting two footers. <sighs>
0: right. Well, what what about uh, Samuel and and Ike? Like they're not usually back to the basket
2: guys, are they? Like I'll I'll be happy if I catches the ball. How about that? <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> well, Samuel so is a. So
0: Samuel has some moves.
1: But Samuel's got some good moves down low. It's it's just that he's young and he's still he's developing yeah, his he's game. Raw. He's got some nice playmaking potential. Look for his passing game too. He's he's sneaky good with his mm. passes. But,
2: but I mean, Samuel wants to start his game at the three-point line. He's got a nice little you know straight. He's away got a nice shot. shot. Yeah. He does. And I think he's also projecting himself to be a next level player. And these guys are taught that you have to be versatile, but you know, he's got an athletic body where, like you said, if he puts his button to the post, he's probably going to give certain teams a mismatch. He's done it more lately, but not as much as you want to see. That's all.
0: Right. I'll be curious. As, I mean, I uh, I'm curious to see if, if Seton Hall does it, if they're, if they're committed to doing that. I mean, there's other ways to beat Creighton obviously. And, and, and you can find, I mean, the way that Seton Hall shares the ball, that, like that was one thing that, the Jays were really concerned about going into that first matchup because, you know, you, you trying to, you can't cover everyone. And if the, if, if the pirates are moving that ball around and, and the defense is having to try to chase it um, ev- eventually somebody's going to be open and they, and they've got some weapons, especially on the three point line that if they get hot, you're worried. And so we we'll, we'll, I'm here. I, I kind of suspect though that you might see like Sandro putting his head down and saying, Hey, like I I did not like how that how things went in Omaha I got to teach you a few lessons here down on the block
1: well to that point John let's let's do this let's play a little exercise here considering how lopsided that first game was if you were coach Willard what could you take away from the game film in terms of preparation this time
0: well I did I remember he said something like I wish we wouldn't have changed our lineup right from the start. It was almost like a, I don't think he said this, but I, I i got the impression that he felt it was like almost like a white flag right from the beginning of like, we can't match up with them. That's the message you're sending your team. You know, we can't match up with them. So we got to change. Well, you know, you know, you don't want that. that. Like all of a sudden you're walking in and you're like, well, plan a sucks. We can't do that. We got to go to plan B. I, you know, that that's not the mentality that I'm sure that he wanted to send. And so and then, then the game starts the way it started. And you're like, okay, that didn't, that didn't work. Um, so my, my assumption is that they're, they're going to be more committed to doing what they do. And they have a week to prepare so they can work on some things and, and, and try to drill in um, a game plan. So, yeah, I, I mean, he, he owned it. Kevin Willard, Willard owned it. And I know why he did it, honestly, because like <laughs> he, we, we saw what happened last year in, the, in this matchup.
2: Yeah, I'll challenge in that, because Tom and I debated about this on that episode and said, you know what? The game in Newark was 87-82. Yes, the Jays had a great game shooting, but Seton Hall kind of stayed toe-to-toe with them Mm -hmm. down the stretch. Seton Hall called a timeout. They came out in a little crafty zone. Uh, Powell and Q got lost and mixed up, and they left open a wide-open three. If they actually get a stop there and come back down and score, you're looking at an overtime ball game. Then they come back to Creighton, and he plays this take-the-air-out-of-the-ball style and completely just almost ahead of the game gives up on what his team does best. That team could score the basketball for Seton Hall last year, as well as play good defense. And he decides to play it like that Maryland game where he was down as two superstars, completely different MO when you don't have Powell and Sandro and you got to play a top 10 team. They wanted to muck it up uh, in, a, in a, 50 point game. You weren't keeping Creighton in their building to a 50 point game.
1: Come on. Not with the Big right. East title on the line. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Well, and if I remember correctly at in New Jersey, I feel like, I feel like mommy went off. So, and I, I think he was I, I actually. I feel like he might have played the five for a lot of that game. He did absolutely in the second half, and and gave Creighton a ton of problems. So yeah, he doesn't necessarily have to play the five in this in this matchup, but um, if he does, um, like, well, actually, where it doesn't really matter where he's at. Like, he's a tough just matchup. In
1: just get in the paint. That's, all That's I right. Get That's right. Big button in the paint. Get that get ball him. down there and, and make some things happen. And,
0: and challenge him. I mean, you got to You got to You got to you got to go at Creighton and make those guys answer and, and respond, you know, like they have it in them. They, they can make like, you know, they defended Nate Watson really well in the first meeting. You know, he was four of 11 from the field uh, committed some turnovers, Providence committed turnovers, trying to get the ball to him. The Jays were really active and they, uh, they, they were locked in for that one in terms of their defensive plan against Nate Watson and in the rematch, they weren't. And so you, you got, you got to test them and at least see what, where they're at. If they're, if they're ready to, uh, you know, kind of put their, put that hat on and bring that lunch pail and get ready to work.
2: All right. So let's do this next. They, they really don't match up in terms of style or head to head matchups. But if there's there, if there was a head to head matchup, you're like, this guy's got to outshine so-and-so. What are you looking for in this matchup?
0: Head to head matchup. Well, I know Roden's impact is, is significant. Um, it's hard. It's hard to pick just one guy for Creighton. I mean, what whatever Seton Hall does defensively against Marcus Zagorowski is going to be important. Um, you just you got to try to keep him uncomfortable. One of the things like in, in games where he's maybe not been at his best, I feel like they've had a good uh, the opponents had a good on ball defender that's just kind of poking at him, you know, meeting him at half court, meeting him at the right when he gets the ball in, uh, and kind of taking a little bit of air out of their break, uh, their their transition game, and just bothering him, being a little bit physical. Maybe you draw a foul or two or something like that. So. Perhaps that's the matchup to look at: is Shavar Reynolds, what he does against Marcus, and can he can he get him uncomfortable uh, and and just kind of knock him off his game, keep him off, uh, keep him out of a rhythm, and like I said, if you got to pick up a couple fouls while doing that, maybe you test the officials' whistle and see what you can get away with. Yeah, but did, it can be just, a little dangerous because then you don't want to be on the bench.
2: I also think you got to be able to kind of do it on the other side of the court and put pressure on their guy to play defense as well, and that's just not Shavar's game. So mm, yep. All right, yeah, you gotta go at him. Yep. Let, let's stick with Creighton some more. Give me a couple keys to victory for the Blue Jays to kind of duplicate their performance from like last time.
0: Well, moving like I, I kind of addressed it a little bit at the start, but like moving, moving those big men. You know, Creighton has to find a way to um whether it's setting ball screens at the top of the key or getting switches, just recognizing where those big guys are and just get them out of position, out of where they're comfort. They want to they want to protect the rim and be in the paint. So that Jay's got to find a way to get them cross-matched or at least get them moving up and down and side to side around the court. So if they happen to um be in a position where they're playing on ball defense or, or recovering, they can take advantage of that. So that that that's I feel like in this matchup, that's the biggest key because how else are you going to neutralize the size? If those dudes are sitting if if, if Ike's sitting in the center of the, the lane, he's going to block everything. You know, so you got to get him out and, and get him moving and try to beat him down the floor whenever you can. Um, so that that's important. Um, rebounding is a key. It's a key always for, for Creighton. They got to find I mean, it's about bringing physicality and and executing your blockout techniques and being fully committed to going after the board. Um, so that's, that's always important. I'm trying to think if there was anything else that stands out. It's always easy to say, make shots (laughs) like that's, that's always easy, but it's so important because of, uh, you know, like the, the, the momentum is going to swing back and forth in a game like this. It, it typically does. And if Creighton could get out and throw the first punch and, and and put together one of those sort of momentous runs, um, it can put Seton Hall on its heels a little bit. And I, so
2: I agree. If they get hit with a punch early on, they might get into a, oh, here we go again mindset. Exactly. Right? And yep. like,
0: so they've, the last two times they've played Creighton, obviously Creighton's had those real like, impressive starts of the game this year. And then the last game in Omaha, um, Creighton blitz them at the end of the game. So, yep. yeah, you could you could you could get them feeling that, but you have to you have to start well, and you have to you have to you have to make make your open shots.
1: Okay, John, we're gonna put you on the spot. Are the fans in Omaha gonna be happy on Wednesday night, or is Seton Hall hmm. gonna send them home sad?
0: Can I, I mean, can I put a little caveat in there because it kind of depends sure. on what happens on Saturday? Sure, like, go right ahead. Yeah. If, I mean, if if Creighton's going in there, I it's hard to know what what their mentality would be like if they lost to, to UConn, but I got to imagine they'd be pretty fired up, maybe even desperate to get a win uh, to end their losing streak. So if, if Creighton loses on Saturday to UConn, I'll pick Creighton to beat Seton Hall. Um, I like, I, I do. It's weird because conventional wisdom should say Seton Hall has got height and length, good athletes. Like they, they this is a good matchup for them. And it, it is not, it is, a, it is a good matchup for Creighton. Uh, but if, if the Jays do end up ending their losing streak beating UConn, um, I don't I don't think the urgency is gonna be as high and, and I think maybe Seton Hall can will be motivated enough um in the end of a revenge game but man what what a moment that would be if if uconn's able to come into omaha and beat beat creighton and you got the jays coming in maybe a little bit of a wounded animal coming in losing three in a row oh, to man. face seton hall and the, the pirates don't want to drop that game like no they, no
2: no they gotta get a win. they gotta get a good win on their belt um, exactly so there is
0: desperate they'd be as desperate too so it'd be a, a nice uh it it feels like a late February game in in late January. I no uh,
2: no book night for UConn. So if they lose that game as well, you start questioning you know the level of competition that you're losing to. On yep. top of that,
0: no doubt, no doubt. The Saturday is really important for Creighton. It's a tone setter. Um, they want to get back on track, but it's not going to be easy because uh, the way that that UConn's oriented, they 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 forced Creighton to turn the ball over a ton. And they're
1: and... going to play in the paint against you. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're going to go right at them. So. Um, that'll be a tough one. Well,
1: it's not going to be hard for us Seton Hall fans to root against a UConn on Saturday night. I'll tell you that for sure. How how does Seton Hall fans
0: feel about Creighton so far? Like, like this, this, these games, there's been some great games in the series of late. Um, and I wonder if, if, is the rivalry moving at all or is it like, eh, because there's other.
2: Here's what it does for me. I watch when you guys take us to the woodshed and go, that is beautiful basketball. That is organized. That is well coached. I want some of that. I kind of get jealous more than anything else when I'm watching, you know, us lose a game to Creighton. But there's been some good ones. You have Casey's 41 point game where he's diving on the floor and you know stealing that ball that they tried to roll into half court. There's been some yeah. good back and forth games. They played some competitive games where uh, Delgado and them were freshmen, but neither of those teams were kind of high in the standings. So they've had some really good competitive. Yeah, and Miles game.
0: Miles Palace hit a couple. Yeah, He's made a couple big time plays against Creighton. But
2: they haven't uh, both played each other in the standings when they both been at the peak of like, you know, two or three last year was kind of the first time that's actually yeah. happened.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the analytical version of the situation. Now let me tell you the other side of the story. You guys keep acting like you've won some championship ex- instead of splitting one up three ways and confetti coming out and fireworks in the arena. And we're going to hate you guys as much as we hate Marquette. Trust me.
0: That's, that's great. I do think that, that if, if Kevin Kevin Willard should be clever and like, if they, if they win the game, like do some sort of, yeah, some sort of celebration, some confetti or something just for, just for old time's sake, like, Oh, we forgot to hand out our championship (laughs) ring today. (laughs) Like, like let's just do that right here at the end of the game uh, to give back at Creighton. Uh, I'm sure he's going to remember that. And, and, uh, and maybe he can use it at some point.
1: Well, John, we can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. Happy birthday to your boy. We're so happy for you and good luck down the road.
0: All right. Thanks, guys. No, thank you.
1: Okay, Mike. Like we mentioned, we not only play Creighton next week, but we get a rematch at the champ. We're going at Nova. This time, they're coming to the rock.
2: All right, Tom. I, 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 you know, like I said, there's a lot of emotions on this podcast. It feels like we're going forever. But I mean, the reality is I'm concerned. I'm really concerned. It seems like Nova is already back to full strength, and that didn't take long. Did you watch the game this weekend? They dominated Providence in the second half on Saturday. 47-29, to 29, four guys scoring double figures, and they won despite Jeremiah Robinson Earl scoring only nine points and Justin Moore going one of six from three-point range. I mean, what the heck happens after they get a tune-up on Thursday – by beating UConn without book Knight because they're, they're beating UConn without book Knight. That's I'll, I'll take that one to the bank. And then two of their best guys that haven't played well since the pause might all of a sudden break out against us and they're winning without those guys doing that. I'm just afraid that it's going to end up just like it has in the past when Jay Wright has already had a chance to see us once. You really think he's going to let Jared Roden go off again in the first half? You expect us to shoot 54% from the floor again? You you think they're not going to get the calls in our building? I, I, I'm worried. I, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying we can't beat them, but I think the opportunity to knock off Nova, you know, at this elite level of being third ranked in the country, which I, I believe they they deserve that ranking. The chance was this past week. This is a monumental task. All right. I'm well, concerned.
1: Mike, let's just start off by saying you—you you, kind of didn't let me get any words in edgewise here. But <laughs> let's just hope. Let's just hope they tune up UConn on Thursday night. Just tune them up. Just beat the hell out of them. Because anytime UConn loses, is okay by me. Well, give give, give me the silver lining. What, what, what do you like going into this matchup? Okay, so yes, this is gonna be a monumental task, and I'm gonna look at it as a whole as a as opposed to two games. They have seen us, we have seen them, and we've seen them at pretty much their best. I can't see Nova playing any better than they did right now. They were clicking on all cylinders. If they play, if they can get to that next level, then Mike, they're winning a national title. Because they were really pretty to watch out there. With that being said, I'm thinking this is a one in one week. This is a situation where all these fans that like to say it, we play better when we're the hunter, not the hunted. I think that's nonsense, but there is going to be some sort of level of desperation. Go back a few years. We needed to beat both Marquette and Nova to get into the tournament, and we did it. This is going to be one of those weeks. You lose to Creighton, you have to beat Nova the following game. I think there's going to be a lot of desperation in these t- kids, and I think th- it's going to come out in their play. See, I think you're full of it. I think you <laughs>
2: want it. I think you want it to be a one in one week, and I and I think they need it to be a one in one week. But the reality is, they don't have that home court advantage like they had in the miracle of the at the Rock week, where they knocked off Marquette and Nova back to back, having the fans behind you knowing the the monumental nature of the task at hand. And then when the team is playing well, getting behind you to get you across that finish line is so important. So we're back to this neutral concept again. So I I don't think we lose by 36 to Creighton. We get somewhere closer to the mean, but Creighton is still a bad matchup for us. I I agree with everything that John said in our dialogue. And then to be honest, no, I, I don't think Nova's clicking at all all cylinders. I think that once again, you didn't get the best of Jeremiah Robinson or all. You didn't get the best of Justin Moore. Caleb Daniels was just coming off of injury just because Jermaine Samuels had a great game does not mean that they got a full complement of their roster clicking on all cylinders yet. I, I think, yes, there is another level for this Nova team and they are going to challenge for the national championship. So you're telling me that if we lose the Creighton game, we have a essentially kind of a must win game against Nova who has a shot to win a national championship? But
1: we're going one and one. Okay, hey, okay. We've, we've beaten better Nova teams, Mike. We've I, beaten I, I, better Nova teams, I, 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 I think look, I, that's what's going to happen. We, I, I think we're going to win one of these two games. I'm rooting for it. We're all rooting for it, and I think they need it. I agree with you from that perspective. But this is a tall
2: task, and if they find a way to get the job done, just getting a split. I will kind of flip my perspective and say that the resume now is starting to build enough teeth to get them into the dance by knocking off one of those opponents, just because of this crazy season, they'll still be in the upper third of the big East standings. They'll have that marquee victory. And maybe that will springboard them towards the rest of this conference slate. So as always, we're going to sit back and say,
1: go pirates. Oh, big blue.
2: Thanks for joining us for another episode of left coast pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle, at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates.